Hey everyone, first off, we at The Family Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast, and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past and present. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I am your host, Simon Theobald, your Familiar Stranger today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Schools of Culture, History and Language, and Archaeology and Anthropology at the Australian National University, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Woo, so many people! Today I'm talking with Kassan Haj, Professor of Anthropology at the University of Melbourne. Professor Hajj is a well-known figure of Australian anthropology, with a long history of theoretical engagement with topics as diverse as multiculturalism in Australia, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and the works of Pierre Bourdieu. We did this interview at the AAS conference in Adelaide, in a side room with a hissing air conditioner, and we've done our best to take the sound out. It was my first interview for the show, and I was a little nervous. Am I awkward? Forgive me. Drop me a note on Facebook, or on Twitter, at TFS Tweets, and let me know. It was a first for me, but he's done lots of interviews and chooses his words carefully, even though he says he doesn't like to engage with journalists anymore. We talk about neoliberalism and other dominant concepts, but also how anthropology helps us find alternatives in the real world. We talk about what it means to be a radical, an activist anthropology, in and out of universities. We also touch on a lot of Australian politics. For listeners elsewhere who don't know, a Hansonite is a follower of Pauline Hanson, who runs a political party widely perceived to be pushing a nativist and anti-immigration line here. Anyway, here it is, my conversation with Gus Anhaj. If you don't mind, can I talk to you about why you've decided to withdraw from commenting as much? Well, I mean, it's kind of like it's not a very dramatic withdrawal from. It's, uh, to a certain extent, I've had a number of experiences where I felt that even though journalists, which I considered progressive, were quite happy to have me on board. And uh, it was interesting because it's almost as if there's a niche for unorthodox or radical or whatever you want sort of like views. Do you feel yourself being put into that box, that category? Uh, no, well, definitely, um, and I don't mind yeah. uh, being put in the category of a radical. I mean, I define myself as, as a radical thinker. That's I don't, nice to know. I don't see myself <laughs> as a conservative thinker or as a kind of someone who wants... Yeah, I'm a critical, radical thinker. And uh, But uh, what interested me was the fact that there was a niche for how much you can be. There, there are certain issues which genuinely people didn't like uh, to have on board or to talk about. So can you give me an example of... Oh, uh, Palestine. Palestine. Yeah, that was, I found, that was actually a limit. So I define myself primarily as an anthropologist and as a thinker, as, as a critical thinker. But there was a point where if I pushed a critical thinking on Palestine, a number of journalists who I don't want to name start talking to me as if I'm representing an Arab point of view. Right. Okay. Sort of like suddenly, because I was pushing a critical line, suddenly they decide this guy is being critical because of his 
Arab background. Arab background. Mm-hmm. I'm not uh, a representative of the Arab community. <laughs> and I'm speaking as an anthropologist, as a critical anthropologist. And it created a number of times uh, situations where I actually had to discontinue the interview. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. No, even on APC. Yeah. Even on oh, ABC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Israel-Palestine is one of these uh, these conflicts where people's idea of being fair has reproduced the same thing yeah. all over again. So when you question this, you appear in the eyes of these gentle and lovely, fair people as if you are really a kind of like some kind of highly unreasonable person. Right. And so it's a kind of like, it's, it's an impossible situation because if you're, you're, you're the one classified as uh, totally unreasonable, while you think the people who are acting as reasonable are the ones who are actually practically reproducing a very unreasonable situation. I, I think that's a, that's a great point to segue yeah. into something that I'd really like to talk to you about, yeah. which is this, this discussion about post-truth politics and Trump's election and so on. And I guess particularly with relationship to Palestine, the, the recognition of Israel, of rather of Jerusalem yeah. as the capital of Israel by the yeah. US government. What do you think anthropology can do to bring critical ideas to that table, to diffuse the situation? There's definitely, you need to reflect on what does it mean to speak as an academic, as an intellectual, before anthropologists. Because there's a kind of like uh, almost uh, naive theory which circulates in university bureaucracies about engagement. Yeah. And the idea of engagement is that why aren't you out there disseminating your views, etc., in the media, what have you. And behind that is an idea that you as an educator, you're teaching students, and you can actually move to the public sphere, and you start teaching other people. The general public, yeah. yeah. However, the problem with this is that today, some of this general public does not treat you with respect. Like, they don't respect you. It's not that uh, they don't understand you. It's not that uh, they think uh, you're too hard or your ideas are too complex. Uh, Why don't you simplify it? It's people who actually think you're the enemy and uh, who think that you're actually full of yourself. You're an elite and you belong to another side of whatever. And so it's actually... How do you talk to the enemy <laughs> is more what we need to think about. People who think you're an enemy, and they are, in a way, enemies, you know, in the sense when, when I'm addressing a Hansenite or a Trump person, I know for a fact that they look at me and think he's an enemy. Is that because you're an academic? Yes. And you have to be aware that uh, these people are actually ableist in the sense that they actually deploy 
uh, modes of thinking around intelligence to insult people. So they say, you're an idiot. or So they used language which we as educators have been trained in a non-ableist way not to use. So you don't, like someone you say, you're an idiot. You, say, you try to be educated. But if you listen to Hansen and Hansen, it's actually, they think it's not just that we have to refrain <laughs> ourselves from saying that they're idiots, but we have to cope with the fact that they think they can classify who is an idiot and who is not. And uh, they look at you, and if you say you're from the university, according to the, the classification of the world, you're an idiot. So how do you actually engage in communication with such group of people? I don't think we have come anywhere near thinking what it involves. And I know for a fact that people say, okay, so, so are you just preaching to the converted? And sometimes I feel saying, yes, and so why not? I mean, yeah. preaching to the converted is very comforting. Yeah. And, and it's good for me and for the converted yep. to feel a little bit of group solidarity sometimes. So, yeah, I don't mind doing that until I find some mysterious way of crossing that enmity barrier. I mean, it's, that's a really, you've brought up a whole bunch of fascinating ideas. I guess for me, what stands out is whether you think that we, as academic figures, have a duty to try and cross that boundary, or whether you think it's acceptable now to simply talk to the converted? Look, I mean, I'm, uh, I, at the same time, I think uh, we are maybe simplifying you and I now, because in a sense, there are the converted and there are the enemy, but there is also a little section in between. In between, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. But uh, obviously, I mean, I'm interested in crossing the barrier. I'm interested in saying, this is my area of scholarship, and what I say is not just a point of view among many points of view. I like to think of it as a point of view which carries some labor, years of expertise, yeah. and therefore that it's worthy of being considered a little bit more than others. And so I like people to actually, yeah, not be convinced by what I say, but to think that what I say has weight, and therefore to think about it, we can say, okay, you know, this person knows what they're talking about. But uh, with these people, they think that actually it's just like what you're saying. It's infantile or something. Do you think this is a new phenomenon? No, it's been not at all. It's not a new phenomenon, but that, uh, definitely it's uh, intensification and dissemination. And uh, it's as a way it has caught on and become a dominant dominant form, that's, that's new. I mean, when I wrote uh, White Nation, yeah. I started exactly with that problematic. Uh, the opening chapter was called My Granny Seizing Power. Mm. And my granny was precisely that person who would say to me, you go to university and you read books, but life has taught me. Yeah, okay, yeah. Okay. And in her eyes, people who go to university become mad. And you say, oh, you think of all these crazy ideas. You don't understand experience in life. And now say, you know, I have some experience in life myself. Can't you see that the books are extra? <laughs> 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 and so that embryonic thing, which 
anybody faces has become politicized and intensified where people say, you go to university, you're an idiot. Is there still, still good reason to be an anthropologist? Is there a future for young people who are interested in anthropology? Yeah. Look, I mean, there's something about the university and university life that is increasingly unviable. It's not an opinion. I can see so many young people who have graduated and uh, who have not been able to find jobs, yeah. uh, etc. That's a reality. And then you have the reality of the quality of academic life and the transformation of the job of an academic from a kind of like professional, independent professional who's got a niche in the university to some kind of proletarianized, audited version of that. I cannot but say that I have misgivings sometimes as to whether people should be pursuing academic mm. academic careers. In a way, I would never have imagined myself thinking 20 years ago. So it's something that's happened in the last 15, oh, 10 absolutely, years. Absolutely. I mean, 20 years ago, I would have still been quite positive <laughs> <laughs> about the possibility of finding. Now, doesn't mean I'm totally negative. Yeah. And doesn't mean if you are an intellectual, not just an academic, an intellectual, uh, that is uh, someone who wants to think independently, who wants to be active, etc. Today, you have to do it against the university. You don't do it with the help of the university which means that from early in your career as a PhD student, if you don't know how to be in university, know that the university is not going to help you to maximize your intellectual mm. capital, but can still manage to create a niche for yourself independently of the university to do it, then it's going to be harder in the future. So you can critique neoliberalism, yes. okay? But I've seen too often people who criticize neoliberalism and then end up dwelling in the critique of neoliberalism. Okay. That is, yeah. you get up in the morning and they're critiquing neoliberalism, you go and you say goodbye at the end of the day and they're still criticizing <laughs> <laughs> neoliberalism, you come back to the office the next day and they're criticizing neoliberalism. And so they're just sitting there criticizing yeah. neoliberalism in the university. Well, obviously, that's quite a depressing prospect for a young academic. <laughs> well, <laughs> Unless, thank you for recognizing <laughs> that. You yeah. know. So if you all you know how to do is sit down and whinge and criticize neoliberalism, I don't think you want to be an academic. Yeah. But... You don't want to not criticize neoliberalism. And you want to squarely look and say, the university can provide me with certain things, such as uh, salary, access to students yeah. who can be really interesting, 
but they're going to harass me with forms that I have to fill and they're already doing so as a, uh, harassing me with all these things as a postgraduate student. So I've got a taste of what it's like. Auditing, uh, scarcity of money. Yes. I'm already teaching part-time, maybe tutoring, and I'm hardly having the time to finish my PhD. All of these are happening. And you look, and this is the reality you're operating with. So in that reality, if, all you can do is whinge. I suggest don't continue an okay. academic life. That's excellent but advice. If you face that situation and you say, I can still carve something, a space mm -hmm. for myself where academic pursuit is a pleasure, and you had more time, you had more time to uh, think. <laughs> You had more time to think. I, I joke with my students and say, can you imagine a university which, you know, how they, all universities now have some kind of PR yeah. slogan. Can you imagine one which, as you enter, it has, take your time, mm. you know. And uh, that's, in a sense, the, my ideal kind of like, that I feel is being undermined. I mean, because we need time to think, you know, sort of like that is of the essence of what it means to produce academic work. One of the problems is that you imagine that the people occupying the positions of administration in university are mean or mm -hmm. they're mean-spirited or they don't wish you well. And that's not the case, yeah. you see. If it was the case, it would be uh, simple morally in a sense <laughs> because you just oppose them politically and you fight them. Yeah. Uh, but like in many bureaucracies, you know, from indigenous bureaucracies, many, many of our anthropological colleagues have shown in the ethnographies, inefficiency has nothing to do with people's commitment. People are really nice. <laughs> That's the worst part, yeah, you know, okay, they yeah, are really yeah. nice. I mean, if you look at the indigenous bureaucracy, it's not that it's full of racist uh, yeah. sort of like, or even kind of like unaware people. I mean, like full of sophisticated mm. people who know exactly what racism is about, et cetera, et cetera, and have very nuanced view of what the issues are. And yet they fail. It's always easy, actually, when there's someone who is nasty, because at least you kind of like concentrate on them <laughs> and say, <laughs> that's nastiness for you. <laughs> But for most of the time, you know, they're just people who are genuinely aware of the difficulties and, and what have you, and they think that they are actually struggling, and they are as much as they can, but the end product is increasingly, increasingly, increasingly a kind of like claustrophobic mm -hmm. uh, narrowing down of the spaces where people can take their time to think. Do you think that's something that, that neoliberalism produces more broadly in society? Is it not something that, is it something that's exclusive to academia or is it a kind of more symptomatic? Oh, no, no, it's absolutely, it's, uh, it is a generalized 
a generalized culture, not not specific to to academia. And uh, it's powerful, and uh, and the fact that it is happening in academia is itself uh, terrifying. Yeah, and depressing. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very melancholy conversation. <laughs> Do you think there's any possibility for, I mean, they talk about goulash communism in Hungary or socialism with a human face. Is there any possibility for neoliberalism with a human face? <laughs> Some kind of project that doesn't just leave us in these claustrophobic... I hate to tell you, but you're living in it. <laughs> <laughs> this is neoliberalism, this with, is a neoliberalism with a human face. Okay. Neoliberalism without a human face, is it happening in Russia probably? Right, okay, yeah. <laughs> For for critical progressive people uh, who are wor working on multiculturalism, for instance, I mean that's something you just reminded me of. There's no point today thinking about multiculturalism if you are not willing to face the scale of the defeat. I mean, when I wrote White Nation, yeah. It was critical of multiculturalism, but was critical in a positive way. That mm. is, my view was that Keating Hawke have pushed multiculturalism as far as can be pushed by the institution. So I'm criticizing it because yeah. I wanted to go further, etc. So I critique tolerance, I critique, uh, but then Howard comes and you start from Howard on, start hoping looking nostalgically back to, to Keating back and Hawke. to the multiculturalism that I criticize mm. because you think, why well, at least, you know, there was some hope, you know. I always think uh, these days in this uh, woman who is protesting in, in front of Trump uh, because of he introduced these uh, anti-abortion mm. laws and she had a sign which said, I can't believe I'm protesting this shit again. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's a bit like this, you know. It's a bit like this. You, you look at multiculturalism, racism, I can't believe it, you know. Do you think multiculturalism as an ideal has been defeated? Well, no, no, it's, that's probably too absolutist yeah. way of putting it. But as I said, you cannot think about multiculturalism without trying to measure the scale of the defeat. Yeah. That's not if it's totally defeated, but there's so many things that have been defeated about it, and you need to think about it. Why, why are we back to some basic, basic things that should have been uh, transcended by now? It's interesting because Malcolm Turnbull often talks about Australia. I mean, it's become one of his slogans. Whenever there's some flare-up of Islamophobia in Australian society more broadly or something anti-Chinese sentiments say at the moment, he, he often repeats the mantra, Australia is the most successful multicultural nation yeah, yeah. in the world. Do you see there as being a viable model elsewhere in the world at the moment? Or are we talking in imaginary alternatives? No, uh, no, I don't think there is anything anywhere successful. But we're not talking about imaginary alternatives, if you mean by imaginary something that 
you're just thinking about yeah. out of the blue kind of like that uh, you're looking at what exists and you go lock yourself in a room and say let me imagine something other than what yeah. what is existing if that's what you mean by imagining no um, I mean I think that's where the power of anthropology as an analytical domain is because nothing is totally totally homogenized of space I mean, we talk about neoliberalism, we talk about the dominance of neoliberalism. Yeah. It does not mean that every single crack in society is Has neoliberal. Been. I mean, that is how it feels, talking to some anthropologists sometimes. Yeah. Well, I think that's bad <laughs> anthropology. And I mean, I, I, I think one of the c- crucial things that I, I try to highlight in my work is precisely that the fact that uh, the concept, whether it's capitalism, neoliberalism, etc., leaves an excess that the aim of anthropology is to unearth. Mm-hmm. These are spaces which are not dominated by whatever is dominating at a specific time. And so there are existing alternatives. That's why they're not just imaginary, imaginary alternatives. Yeah. I mean, that's, there's a book by, I think it's called Eric Wright, who in 2010 wrote what he calls either real utopias or realistic utopias. And yeah, exactly. I mean, he talked in particular about the, the kind of just the collapse of the Soviet Union, not necessarily as an alternative model, but as uh, the Soviet Union as having provided the possibility of an alternative to yeah. capitalism, neoliberalism, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. And he says that for most of us now, the notion that there is any alternative no longer exists. We've all effectively bought into the, the structures that exist around us as the only opportunity. But you think there is... Well, I mean, Eric Wright comes from a very specific Marxist yeah. trajectory where alternatives are totalizing and holistic. I think if you go to the anthropological tradition, I mean, if you look at the early anthropological tradition, what did it involve? It involved going and saying there are ways of existing in the world other than the way we exist. Yeah. Okay? But there's more because if you stop there, you miss something very important. Let's take just Marcel Mauss, for instance, Mm -hmm. and gift exchange. It's not that he says, okay, look what is happening in Maori society. Look what is happening in Papua New Guinea. Uh, look what is happening uh, among Native American Indians. You have gift exchange, and our society is dominated by commodities. Yeah. If he stopped there, it would be interesting, I suppose, in the sense that he would have said, over there they have gift exchange, over here we have commodities. Yeah. But he never stopped there. He goes and says... Over there, there's gift exchange. Actually, that helps me see that even our society, though it is dominated by commodities, I can see a lot of places where I can see traces of gift exchange. Uh, Animism. Likewise, those who have studied animism didn't say, oh, look, animism over there, ultra-rationality here. Yeah. Same way. It's over there, but it helps me see the fact that it exists here. And so anthropology, in this sense, does provide 
the possibility of thinking of alternatives, but not alternatives in the grand socialist tradition of a holistic society, but alternatives in the way that, you know, there are ways, things you can build on to create uh, ways of existence uh, that are not in line with the dominant modes of existence. So do you, then, do you think that anthropology has a kind of, I mean, I guess one of the debates I, I frequently have with friends and colleagues is about anthropology's role as a, as a kind of activist discipline. And many of us who've, who've come through in the last sort of five, ten years have read the work of people like Nancy Shepard Hughes and her call for an, an activist anthropology and so on. Do you think it, it needs to be that kind of straightforward? Or are we talking more about anthropology as shining light on... Uh, I don't think you can be formulaic about this. Uh, I mean, some anthropologists might feel able to be anthropologists and activists. Some might feel like just writing and uh, letting uh, activists do their own work, take up uh, their writing. Mm. Why not? I mean, it depends on temper. It depends on uh, many things. So we, don't. we don't all have a duty to be out there on the barricades, making a case for a better world? No, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> I think, I think uh, you know, the point is that we have a variety of abilities and uh, it's more the direction in which you are using your abilities and what you feel comfortable doing. I mean, I'm not into macho, <laughs> macho activism kind yeah. of like whereby you know some people are scared to be activists mm -hmm. I'm not gonna go say how dare you be scared you should be kind of like yeah. tough okay. so some people are scared what's the point do you think can I ask you a question about your life growing up yeah I mean one of the things we talk about as a as a blog quite often is the critical moment where something switched and we decided that anthropology was where we wanted to keep going, was, was something we wanted to follow up. Did you have a moment when you felt that anthropology was something you'd like to continue or was it more of a gradual kind of discovery? Uh, it was gradual. It was gradual. I mean, there was a moment where I knew that I was interested in the social sciences. Mm as opposed to the hard medical, medical student. Yeah. I started as a medical student. Right, okay. And there was a point where I knew I was much more interested in thinking about society and thinking with philosophy, reading philosophical works and reading social science works. And that's, that's, that was definitely something where uh, happened during the Lebanese Civil War. How do you think the civil war in Lebanon has shaped your understanding of anthropology's role? Well, I mean, I wrote my PhD on Christian fighters during the civil war in Lebanon. And so my fieldwork was, beside my personal experience, my fieldwork was also about uh, war and warring societies. Yeah, of course it has shaped, I mean, I've, billions of ways yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't know where to yeah. start in, in the way it has shaped me uh, personally, psychologically uh, in all kinds of ways of course what are you reading currently? what am I reading currently? 
Well, I'm writing a lot at the moment. Okay. That's why I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting sort of like there, sort of like, uh, well, I'm reading a book edited by a friend, and it's called Comparative Metaphysics. Could you unpack its content a bit for us? It sounds like a fairly complicated title. Well, it's it's one of those those new works that have come with the ontological turn, yeah. etc. But at the core of it is the idea that anthropology, for a long time, has built its reputation around making a claim that indigenous worlds are interesting mm. and worthy of analysis and uh, they shouldn't be dismissed, yep. they shouldn't be uh, inferiorized, etc. But it has been reluctant of using indigenous categories mm-hmm. as analytical categories. Yeah. That is, we're happy to say, it's really, really interesting what you are thinking, but let me use my Western tools of thinking to analyze what you are thinking. Yeah. So what happens when you start saying, well, what if indigenous thought can analyze us? Mm-hmm. So that division between analytical thought and the analyzed is broken. Yeah. So what does it mean when we use indigenous categories to analyze us? What can, what, I mean? Yeah, well, it, mean, it, it definitely means that also, this time, in this time, day and age, indigenous people don't need anthropologists to come and say, let me help you understand yourself. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> like, no, nobody wants, is waiting for anthropologists to explain how some other people are living. Other people who are living can tell you <laughs> and can analyze themselves uh, very well. Uh, so the question is more, can we enrich our analytical understanding stock mm. such as we can understand ourselves differently? It's, it's quite interesting that a lot of students here have spoken to me about the concern that their informants will read their work and then potentially not agree with their analysis yeah. of the society. Yes, in absolutely, which they- absolutely. I mean, that's, that's a perennial issue. A lot of social analysis assumes uh, that it's ob- the object is analytically dead, maybe not socially yeah. dead, but analytically dead. That is, they are not capable of analyzing themselves, or if they are analyzing the- themselves, it's naive. And let me come and give you the seriously sort of like hard analysis. Uh-huh. And so, so the question of can analysis be co-analysis, things like this, yeah, they're crucial questions for us today. They are indeed crucial yeah. questions. Yeah. Thanks so much for talking to us. It was lovely. And I look forward to speaking to you in the future. Okay. Thanks very All much. All the best. That was it, me and Gassan Haj. Today's episode was produced by me, Simon Theobald, with the help of our other hosts, Julia Brown, Jodie Lee Tramboth, and Ian Pollock. 
Our executive producer is, of course, Ian Pollock. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world, at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog, or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet to us at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music was by Pete Dabro. There's a link to his EP in the show notes. Special thanks, as always, to Julia Miller, Will Grant, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Until next time, keep talking strange.